Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you'll probably have picked up on the fact that my favorite kinds of histories use an unusual lens to look at the past. Histories of smell, biographies based on locations, stories of commodities that reveal the inner workings of empire. The latest foray into the past that piqued my interest is art historian Jack Hartnell's new book, Medieval Bodies, Life and Death in the Middle Ages. I think one of the hardest things to do in history is to really imagine what it was like to be a physical body in a world that looks and smells and feels completely different from our own. What was it like to go to the doctor 800 years ago? If you cut your finger and bled, what would that blood mean to you? What about the blood of saints? Would that be different? What about exercising, eating food, giving birth, having sex, burying the dead? The way we think about these things fundamentally changes how we experience them. Jack Hartnell's book explores the answers to these questions by looking at a series of vivid objects, stories, texts, paintings, starting at the head and meandering through skin and heart and stomach all the way to the feet. Jack Hartnell is a lecturer in art history at the University of East Anglia, currently doing a fellowship at the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens in Pasadena, California. Thanks for chatting with me about bodies, Jack. It's a total pleasure. It's great to be here. So my first question for you is how you came up with the framing for the book. Why write a book about specifically medieval bodies? And I guess what kind of hole in the literature were you trying to fill? Mm, that's a good question. I would say um, I'm not sure I was trying to fill a hole because what's one of the really kind of exciting and interesting things about working in the particular part of the field that I do. So I'm an art historian. I work mainly on um, visual culture, material culture, and artistic culture in the later Middle Ages normally, so say between the year 1000 and 1500 in Europe, but also to some degree around the Mediterranean. Um, and there are lots of people who've really thought very carefully and in lots of really interesting ways about the body. And one of the things that's very interesting, though, about people who work on on kind of um, corporeal history, if you want to call it that, is that it spreads across a huge uh, different subset of, of disciplines within medieval studies. Um, so obviously the history of medicine. But one of the things that is so appealing about that kind of work is that the body is so um, all-encompassing 
as to how we experience and understand and frame and present our world, both you know, throughout human history, you could say, um, that it allows you to touch on all sorts of different things. So the book is structured much like a medieval medical treatise um, in that it would uh, it takes different parts of the body from head to toe, what the medieval authors in Latin referred to as their works as being a capite ad calcem, from head to heel. But what I wanted to do is not just to write a kind of medical history, because as I was saying, the body is, impinges on so many other parts of uh, our kind of human culture, um, from literature through to art production, through to politics, through to religion. Uh, so, so in a sense, I was taking that medical framework and using it to think more broadly across different areas of medieval culture, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a huge undertaking <laughs> because, as you say, the body is such a vast, I mean, it has its tentacles in everything, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In medicine, in religion, in art, in all of that. So how do you even begin the process of, I guess, collecting your own body of evidence for writing mm -hmm. about how the medieval body was imagined or experienced? Mm. I mean, it's worth saying that a book like this could be written a hundred times over in slightly different ways, depending on your focus. But I guess in terms of a body of evidence, one is often led by what survives. Um, that's to say that the period uh, of the later Middle Ages is one that in comparison certainly to many swathes of later European history is kind of sparse in some ways. We don't have the same kinds of personal written testimonies. This is an age before, for instance, diary keeping became a significant personal phenomenon. In certain parts of Europe in that moment, say in um, the British Isles, uh, the Reformation and various subsequent political uh, movements mean that a lot of visual culture was destroyed in the 16th century, a lot of Catholic culture. Likewise, if you're trying to trace a history of something like uh, Judaism, as I do in the book in, in European history, you come up against the constant um, political strifes and troubles and persecutions of, uh, in this case, the Jewish people, which mean that you're really having to try and excavate a broader history of whatever it might be from sources that are inevitably limited. Um, for me, the, one of the most useful and exciting ways of doing that is through objects. So often when writing a particular chapter, I was actually thinking not necessarily about the broad narrative that I wanted to tell, but about maybe a cluster of quite disparate and different objects. So in the case of the head, um, manuscript illuminations, diagrams of the brain, reliquaries of human heads. So just trying to draw a line in some ways to kind of shepherd that material together, not in necessarily too fixed a way, but in a way that allows the reader to get a broader picture. Yeah. You know, I think we have a lot of stereotypes about the Middle Ages, that they were dirty, that they were sort of middle and in between, even dark, mm -hmm. um, and also that they were extremely white and European. Mm -hmm. I guess my question really is, like, how did you choose to set up or collect that evidence to sort of dispel various stereotypes? And what mm. were they? Well, the way I frame this in the beginning of the book um, it was actually a, just a throwaway comment by a colleague who used to work at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. And they did what every good uh, you know, uh, art museum should do, any kind of museum should do before they renovated their spaces. They did some audience research. So they asked people of different terms, ideas, phrases that popped into their mind when they heard these two words, medieval and renaissance. And predictably, when responding to ideas of the renaissance, people 
seem to have this really wonderful picture. Uh, it's a very Italianate world. It's you know you've got big figures like Leonardo and um, Michelangelo. It's about white, beautiful sculpture. It's warm. It's like I always think of it as kind of like an advert for a kind of posh orange juice. Uh, it's a really kind of wonderful time. And of course, by contrast, the stereotypes that surfaced when people came to think about the Middle Ages were equally predictably negative. I think their top five words that they came up with to kind of describe the Middle Ages were mud, huts, darkness, right, the Dark Ages, a god, and I think there they don't mean a kind of nice, benevolent god, but a kind of awful, uh, terrifying, smiting god, and potatoes was the fifth word that they came up with, which for those who know the history of um, you know vegetables and tubers will know that this is a, a, a kind of a vegetable that came to Europe uh, well into the 16th century after the kind of so-called Columban exchange and the kind of transatlantic, beginning of transatlantic um, uh, trade and uh, um, the kind of effectively colonialism of uh, Europe in the Americas. So it, this stereotype was enough to warp people's perception of places and things and people. And so I felt very clearly that what I wanted to do with the book is to lay out a much more, uh, in some ways, coherent history. Because when we think about those unpleasant stereotypes, the idea that it was backwards, as you said, it was dark, it was dirty. When we come to think about medicine and the body, in some ways, those stereotypes are amplified even more. Uh, if this is a backward, dirty, unpleasant world, then the medicine of that moment, something that we see today as being very sanitized, clean, scientific, conceptual, well, the Middle Ages falls down even further. So in a way, by using the body and medical practice to anchor the book, I was trying to present the, the worst case scenario <laughs> and actually show that, no, there's actually quite a lot of sophisticated and careful medical thought around in medieval Europe, um, a lot of sophisticated medical practice as well as writing, um, and actually that this is a great place for flipping those preconceptions. Yeah, I was certainly surprised by how sophisticated some of the medical undertakings were and how bold in some ways, you know, um, there were, of course, the humors um and some things i thought were kind of funny and indicative of how flipped things have become you know surgery back then was sort of like the bottom of the food chain and now surgeons get paid millions so mm. you know there are differences yeah absolutely and the point here being that medicine like any other product of a society is hugely culturally contingent today because medicine is so closely bound up with uh, what we see as a kind of objective science um, it, it, that has all sorts of ripple effects as to the kind of standing of medicine in today's contemporary culture. So as exactly as you say, the idea that it is a learned profession, that it's well paid, that it's well respected, and that it's deeply authoritative. And actually, that really is a, a more a product of how we place medicine within our society than it is uh, inherent to medicine itself. And more than anything, I think we need to be hugely sympathetic of medicine of the past because our medicine is by no means perfect. Um, and if we want people in, I don't know, 500, 1,000 years' time to look back on the year 2019 with any kind of sympathy when doubtless a lot of the things that we do today will seem comparatively barbaric and backwards and ill-informed, then I think we have to have the same kinds of sympathies for people practicing with the same goal of healing and uh, um, kind of health a thousand or five hundred years ago from us. I think one of the most interesting ideas that we see throughout 
this lineage of medical thinking is the relationship between the inner and the outer self, hmm. the mind and the body, you know, however you want to characterize that. People drew kind of a different line, maybe, from the line we would draw between those two. If they drew a line at all, or if, you know, it was more like a mirror, the outer body being a reflection of what the inner body contained in the skin or hair or head or whatever. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship and how it manifests itself? Sure. It's interesting to think, for instance, about the circulatory system. In the Middle Ages, the the blood was understood not necessarily to function in this nice, neat, closed circuit, but to be uh, kind of created through various um, digestive processes within the body and then to be pumped outwards to the body's extremities to provide a kind of life-giving heat and sustenance. Um, so we're already not dealing in the Middle Ages with the body, in, at least in the circulatory sense, as being a closed circuit. Uh, and I think that actually quite fundamental distinction between thinking of the body as a kind of this hermetically sealed thing, which is really how we think about many aspects of the body today. We talk about the skin as a barrier. We talk about germs and bacteria as invading, as sort of somehow penetrating and pushing through into the body. That kind of uh, closed sense of the body is not something that we really find in the same way or presented in the same way in a theoretical sense in medieval medicine. And as a result, I think we have to think about uh, a slight fluidity of, of the surface, the idea that the skin or, or the kind of body's extent does not simply stop there. On the contrary, if we go back to think about classical medicine, um, the humours of the body are affected not just by things happening within the body, but actually by all sorts of things happening beyond the body. In this sense, the human body is one small part of an enormous cosmic exchanging whole. So the body might be knocked out of humoral balance by a change in the season. It might be uh, responding in some way to the cosmic movement of the stars. We're talking about this extremely all-encompassing natural philosophical understanding of the body as part of a broader world. So in that sense, the body is really open to influence. But also, you know, uh, to come back to your point in a, about physicians and understanding how um, uh, the surface and the interior could be read, well, this is a real problem for physicians because if what you're trying to conceive of and understand is the body's internal balance, how on earth can one get access to that? And this also not just uh, extends from um, a kind of physical examination of the body, but also to some degrees almost a visual assessment. Um, the uh, the texture and colour of the skin, for instance, might be something that uh, implies a certain kind of natural predisposition. Likewise, and this is where we start to get into more complicated ideas of stereotyping based on all these external facets of a person, there are ways in which the body's kind of external presentation might suggest uh, people's different propensities towards different kinds of levels of, of health. And that extends, too, to people's social status. So there's an understanding that ruling classes, the class of kings and queens, especially kings, run on a much hotter level uh, than peasants who are more towards the bottom of the social spectrum. Likewise, there's a big distinction between men and women in this regard. Men are understood as having quite a separate humoral makeup, a standard baseline of humoral makeup to women. So this reading of internal and external signs bleeds quite kind of complicatedly into different kinds of social uh, stereotyping, stereotyping by gender, that different kinds of medicine might be more applicable for people in different kinds of social and uh, positions within medieval society. 
Applicable and also available, right? I would imagine that a king or a queen would not be meeting the same kind of doctor or healer as a peasant or even a tradesman. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's say that you're Jacques Bloggs living in uh, in France in the year, I don't know, 1400, let's say. Particularly in France and in Paris, uh, um, what seems to have emerged in that particular locale is a slight distinction between the kinds of healers that you might be able to turn to uh, if you were um, looking for different kinds of medical care. The idea of your inner body, the various internal workings of your organs and the humours and um, the kind of functioning of the body within, was the kind of preserve of a group of healers that we might um, separate out into being uh, much more theoretically inclined. People who were trained in university settings, physicians. These are the kind of people who had a, a written understanding, a scholarly understanding of these long-standing classical ideas around the body, and in particular the balance of your internal humours, these four different elements which circulated within the body, almost like these kind of viscous um, pneumatics within the body. On the other hand, and in a very different social sphere, we have all sorts of healers uh, who we might broadly call empirics, people who are um, practically engaged in thinking about healing the body. And these come people who come from a very different kind of social background. These aren't necessarily literate people. These aren't necessarily people who are well-versed in the kind of theory and scholastic background. They're certainly not people who are trained in universities, which are at this point um, extremely elite institutions for uh, men only, for um, and men of good kind of Christian background uh, uh, at that. Instead, these empirics entail people like surgeons, barber surgeons. We would move all the way uh, across the chain of empirics, think about people like midwives, people who are engaged with the body in a much more practical way. Um, often this means the surface of the body, the exterior of the body. We're not talking about people doing kind of deep invasive operations, but people who might be particularly good at things like setting bones, stitching wounds, uh, dealing with rashes and treatments of the surface of the body, for instance. And these are people who would have been trained, as I said, not in universities, but in workshop settings, in a kind of much more apprenticeship style scenarios. So these different social worlds were certainly interesting ways to think about or, uh, how people might have conceived their interior and exterior selves in quite different, potentially quite different categories. What's interesting as we descend in your book down the body from the head down towards gynecology is how you talk about the collapsing or maybe absorption is a better word of some of this empiric medicine into physician medicine particularly when it comes to midwives or female folk practitioners, mm -hmm. whose knowledge was, over the course of the Middle Ages, cordoned off by institutions like the church or the state, and even in some instances categorized and forbidden as a kind of witchcraft. Mm. How or maybe even why did that happen? Mm. So what historians of medieval gynecology and obstetrics have spoken about is a really interesting shift whereby women's medicine um, which uh, was uh, in the earlier, seems from the, in the earlier period of, of its um, practice to have been something uh, much more broadly and diversely practiced, largely by women in much more local and uh, kind of folkloric settings, that is to say kind of um, uh, uh, thinking about healing on a much more personal and local level, um, to something that is co-opted by 
uh, this male university academic elite that is seems in some way or is seen as needing to have some kind of clear academic basis and as a result is taken out of the hands of some of those earlier women practitioners. So what we're talking about here is a masculinization of women's medicine as various historians have, have, have kind of discussed it or thought about it. In particular, it's interesting to think about the work of someone like Monica Green. She talks, she's got a really great book entitled Making Women's Medicine Masculine. It's this idea that actually uh, what happens throughout the course of the Middle Ages is a dispossession of women's medicine and a distancing of women from their own, the practice of their own medicine and their own health in that sense. Yeah, and going back to the idea that we're still living with some of these medieval ghosts, mm. it's not like that's entirely gone away. If you consider how women's pain is treated differently from men's, for example, mm. or how a lot of vaccines or drug trials are done only with men because women's hormones are a complicating factor, which kind of gets at my last question, which is how do you think that this style of doing history, of writing not just a history of medicine, say, but really a history of how we conceive the body, helps us look not just at the past, but at the present? I suppose for me, so I've only been based in the US here on a fellowship for a few months, but one of the things I've noticed about, um, which I, I think I knew about American culture, but I didn't necessarily appreciate as much as I, I do now that I'm here, is just how strongly debated and um, uh, fiercely held opinions are on issues of health in contemporary politics. And I wonder to, to some degree... You know, there are people who have been interested in thinking about health and its social relations, its visual characteristics, its theoretical underpinnings throughout history for a long time. You know, the history of medicine is a really exciting and interesting field. And I'm really thrilled that, uh, you know, um, there seems to be a growing interest in it in a public historical consciousness. But I wonder if one of the things that's driving or at least that's contributing to people being interested in medicine of the past is just how much of a strong and prominent role medicine is playing in the present. Um, access, you know, everything from, you know, Medicare to, uh, you know, reproductive rights through to, um, I don't know, inoculation and um, vaccination and the anti-vaccine movement that's kind of uh, worryingly on the rise, uh, not just in the US, but, you know, these are issues that are really right at the heart of political and social discourse around the world. You know, to think back in the UK context, uh, you know, we're going into an election in the UK in which the how the NHS is going to be... Um, the National Health Service is going to be conceived of, funded, um, supported, uh, shrunk, uh, in, depending on your political persuasion, is really at the centre of a lot of people's political campaigns. So I feel a bit like that's one of the really exciting things for me about doing medical history and thinking about medical history through visual culture, through written culture, through literary culture. It takes something that is right at the forefront of our modern agenda and reminds us that this has always been the case. You know, these are not just throwaway issues which people had occasional engagement with. On the contrary, you know, health, well-being, sickness and the kind of social and political management of these ideas are really central to human experience. We'll have some suitably medieval images in the show notes, but for the real deal, you'll have to flip through Jack Hartnell's new and beautifully illustrated book, Medieval Bodies, for a tour of the inner workings of the Middle Ages. 
There will be links, too, in the show notes to some of the work we've talked about, especially about witches and midwifery, a pet interest of mine. We'll be back next week, yes, during the holiday, to give you something to listen to once you've filled your own contemporary body with a feast fit for medieval royalty. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.